Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 20 in the book of John entitled The Good Shepherd, where we discuss John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? These are just some very encouraging and sweet verses speaking of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd for the sheep and how he says that he lays down his life for the sheep. And just for me, contemplating that kind of love, as Jesus will say later in the same gospel, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus lays down his life for us and he's willing to die that we might not be harmed. And also we're gonna see a contrast with false teachers uh, who care nothing for the flock, uh, but who are just trying to take advantage of others and fleece them even materially, financially, uh, for their own benefit. So there's a warning in this passage as well. Hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read John 10, verses 1 through 21 for us as we get started. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Andy, what's the context of this teaching by Jesus, and how does this initial figure of speech in verses 1 through 6 relate to the end of John 9? Yeah, we need to remember whenever we're reading the New Testament or you know the Bible, the chapter divisions, the verse divisions are later editions. They're helpful but they're not inspired like the text itself is inspired. There's actually some very odd chapter divisions from time to time, but I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with putting a new chapter here, uh, chapter 10, but there, this really is a continuation of the healing of the man born blind, and at the very end, we uh, 
find Jesus' incredible compassion to go after this man who was kicked out of the synagogue for no reason at all, simply because he thought that Jesus was a prophet and that he must be from God. He wasn't saying that he was the son of God. He wasn't saying that he was incarnate or any of those things. His theology wasn't at that point. But even for just simply being positive toward Jesus, he was kicked out. So Jesus has a very sharp encounter with the Jewish leaders who came uh, at that point and were around him when Jesus is ministering to this man. And he makes a statement, for judgment I have come into the world so that those who see may become blind and those who are blind may be able to see. And so they challenged him about that and said, what, are we blind? And Jesus said, if you were, if you were blind, namely physically blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim we see, your guilt remains. And then he goes right into chapter 10. So that's the context here. It's really a very highly charged controversial atmosphere where he's dealing with who we would take to be false religious leaders. Andy, as the passage begins, we see this statement about uh, a man that's a thief and a robber. Who is the thief and robber in verse 1 in Jesus' context? And how can one tell who is a thief and a robber? Right. So uh, in verse 8, he said, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. So it's plural. So we're talking about human beings who clearly in context are false religious leaders, false teachers, false prophets, uh, etc. So I think you would consider the scribes and Pharisees frequently spoke against them, the Sanhedrin, Annas and Caiaphas, all of that. And then their ilk in the generations that preceded them. These would be Jewish religious leaders who had no genuine faith in God, but who saw religion as a means to an end, namely financial uh, wealth, that they would take advantage, they would fleece the flock. And so any false teacher, uh, even if they weren't living that kind of lifestyle, but they often were, a, a luxurious lifestyle, these are the thieves and the robbers. Now, I think also we should keep in mind what Paul says concerning um, false teachers, who he calls the, the super apostles, the false apostles. He says they're servants of Satan, masquerading as teachers of truth. And no wonder, because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So it shouldn't be surprising that his, his um, servants masquerade as teachers of righteousness. Hmm. So the true thief and robber is Satan. Satan, in John 10.10, 10, when it says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I think we should see both the human thief, which is the false teacher, the false religious leader, and behind, behind them all is Satan. That's helpful for us and will be helpful as we continue in this passage, like you mentioned, and discuss this same idea as it comes up later on as yeah. well. According to verse 2, as we continue on, how can one tell who the true shepherd is? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you mentioned and you asked a moment ago, I don't know that I really answered, how can we tell if someone is a thief and a robber? And just from the text is, do you come in by the gate? Mm -hmm. And so now that Christ has come, now that he's been born of the Virgin Mary, now that Christ has lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, anyone who follows him, and we get this in 1 John as well, if you are not an antichrist, you are going to proclaim the Christ. You're going to proclaim these facts of the gospel. You're not going to try to change things about Jesus. You're going to say the truth about Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who died and rose again. And in that case, then, you are an under-shepherd, like we, you know, elders are considered shepherds of the flock. Mm. But there is one flock and one shepherd ultimately. Jesus is going to say that. One flock, one shepherd. But there are under-shepherds. And so what we would say is, 
does this religious leader, this spiritual leader, does he preach the true gospel? Hmm. Does he preach Christ and him crucified? Or does he fudge on the identity of Jesus? All who proclaim the Christ, they are from God. First John 2 says that very plainly. The others are antichrist. So basically, what does this teacher teach about Christ? What does the teacher teach about the gospel? And then is their lifestyle a holy lifestyle? Or are they living for, you know, for plundering the, the flock? Are they living for material ends? If you're seeing luxurious lifestyle, etc., this is by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Mm. But Jesus, um, he is the true shepherd. And he comes in his father's name. He comes in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. His credentials are in order. His holiness is in order. Um, so he is the true shepherd. Hmm. How does Jesus call his own sheep by name and lead them out? And what is the relationship between this calling and the sheep hearing and knowing the voice of the shepherd? Well, from what I've told, I, I, you have to do some reading about this. And, you know, I, I grew up in suburban eastern Massachusetts. I don't know that I really saw sheep except that I went to a, you know, a farm about an hour from where I lived or a zoo. So there were, certainly weren't any sheep wandering around on the road I grew up on. Hmm. Um, so you have to kind of learn, uh, you know, the backdrop here. And, and so the shepherd would identify a sheep. He needed to know a sheep. It didn't seem like they were branded like cows would, but he would know which belonged to him. And you can imagine um, a large area where many flocks were, were um, feeding, they were eating grass. And so the different shepherds would have to be able to maintain their own flock and identify whose they were and train the sheep to follow his voice. Mm. And so he would call his own sheep and they would come, they would follow him. So this is the, the parable, it's a metaphor. Um, and so this blind, this man born blind, he said, tell me if you believe in the Son of Man. And he says, who, who is he, Lord? Tell me that I may believe in him. He's ready. He just needed information. Hmm. So this is what I believe. I think ultimately uh, the scripture, the full, the full counsel of the word of God teaches that before the foundation of the world, God chose the elect. He chose them by name. He knew who they were. He knew what kind of lives they would live. All the days ordained for us were written in God's book before one of them came to be. And he was loving us and knowing us by name before one of our days came to be. And then once we were born and we grew up, um, he would call us by name. And that's important even when he would, he would use people's names or even give them new names. You know, Simon he called Peter and um, James and John he called the sons of thunder. So that had to do with their personalities. But yeah. he, he, he knew their names and sometimes would even repeat them. Simon, Simon, he would say, um, you know, this kind of thing. So there was this intimacy and he knew, his, he knew his sheep by name. And so what I believe this theologically is saying that when Jesus calls you through the Holy Spirit, if you are elect at some point, you're going to hear his voice through the gospel call, through the evangelist, might be your mom or dad, might be a pastor, might be a you know, a, a dorm, a fellow member of your dorm in college or, or a mm. classmate could mm -hmm. be a co-worker. But it really isn't them. It's Jesus speaking to you through them, through the gospel. And you hear him call you by name to follow him. And so that's how I take this. It's, it's sovereign election and then effectual calling or irresistible grace. As we saw in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come. So when he calls you by name, you're going to come and believe in Jesus. 
And what a sweet picture. I love that idea of the intimate connection between the Savior uh, and the individual, or the shepherd and the sheep in this case. Amen. And seeing that the sheep follow the shepherd because they hear his voice, does this have something to teach us about the need for regular Bible intake for a healthy Christian walk, and how might we learn from this? Absolutely. You know, we continue to hear his voice. Um, we, we, we might use red-letter editions of the Bible, but we believe that the entire Scripture is Jesus speaking to us as his flock. So we're going to read Genesis as though Jesus were speaking to us in the name of his Father. And so we're going to keep hearing his voice. We learn to hear his voice through the Holy Spirit. We're going to hear Christ call on us and tell us what to do. So I take the Great Commission, I just expand it to be all of the moral commands, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I think the I in you there is I, Jesus, as the perfect, uh, the incarnation and the image and the invisible God, through my spirit, the spirit of Christ, everything the Bible presses on your conscience now in the new covenant, everything, I'm telling you to do it. Mm. And so we hear his voice whenever we read scripture and we know that he's calling on us to follow him. So helpful. As we continue though, there's, there's another voice as well. Mm. Who, is, who is this stranger in mm. this metaphor and why do the sheep run from the stranger? Well, going back to the the thief and the robber teaching, I think ultimately the stranger is Satan, but he has human henchmen. What he's saying is we are not going to follow heretics. We're not going to follow false teachers. This is very much what John says when he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you knows the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And no lie comes from the truth. So what he's saying is, he's look, the false teachers are going to go out from us because they weren't really of us. They're the spirit of Antichrist. They're teaching falsely about Jesus, etc. You, the true followers of Christ, will not follow them. Mm. You have this anointing from the Holy One. And that anointing protects you from false gospels. It protects you from false teaching. You will identify it and say, no, I don't think so. You might even be a relatively new Christian. You're just not going to go down the bad path. Mm. And it's really interesting for me as a teacher of the Word of God and a preacher I know that John's not saying we don't need teachers and preachers. What he's saying is that if, if you've got a really skilled exegete, somebody who does a great job teaching the Word of God, the people sitting under his, his faithful preaching ministry are going to be learning tons of things. But the anointing from the Holy One enables what they hear to be identified as truth, gospel truth. It's new, but then gospel truth. Conversely, they listen to a false teacher prosperity gospel guy or Jehovah's Witness guy, Mormon guy or some other new cult, they'll listen and they think, uh-uh, no, that's wrong. Hmm. They don't even know why sometimes, or maybe they do. They're well-read in scripture enough to be able to refute that person. That's a separate gift and you have to be able to refute false teaching if you're an elder. But just as a church member, you're like, no, nah, I don't believe that. Mm. And again, just that connection with the Word of God, knowing yeah. the truth and then being able to discern in light yeah. of that. But I love Jesus' absolute statement here. They will not follow the stranger. Mm. So my sheep aren't going to follow false teachers. Yeah, they're not going to be tricked by anybody. Mm -hmm. hmm. In verse 7, Jesus shifts the image. Mm -hmm. What does it mean that Jesus is the door? And what does this teach us about the exclusivity of Christ as the means for human salvation? All right, so in verse 9, he says, I am the door. Another translation would say the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So this would be, I think, similar to the Sermon on the Mount where he says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now later in John 14, he's gonna say, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. So Jesus is the gate and the narrow way. He's both. So the way I would understand that is that Jesus is the way by which we can enter heaven. Hmm. Or the way by which even now, while we still live, we can enter the kingdom of heaven. You're on the outside, you need to be born again. At some point you have to enter. Jesus says, I'm the gate hmm. or I'm the door. And so he is the way by which, and there's no other way to get in, no other way, only by Jesus. He, it's the exclusivity. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way to enter. I am the gate, hmm. I am the door. Wow. So we spoke earlier about the thieves and the robbers, and in verse 10, we are reintroduced to this same idea. In what ways does the thief steal, kill, and destroy? Yeah, so I have a hard time hearing this without really just immediately going to Satan. As Satan is the ultimate murderer and thief and uh, liar. Mm. As he said you know, in earlier, you're of your father the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Mm. Now, I do believe that he uses human instruments. So all of the great religions, false religions of the, of the world, all the great cults had specific leaders. So Muhammad with Islam, um, Joseph Smith with Mormonism, Charles Taze Russell with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Earlier than that, Arius, who taught Arianism, the early version of Jehovah's Witness false doctrine. Anyway, there's, there are human leaders. Uh, and they are, in some sense, thieves and, and, and murderers um, because they're killing souls by their false teaching. But ultimately, it's Satan. And so Jesus is contrasted with Satan. The thief comes mm. to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so I, I think whenever there's this principle of stealing, killing, and destroying in my life, something's happened. Like I even think about times in my marriage when, when I have things that are planned and they're wonderful and all that, but some, some satanic quarrel comes in and, and I behave differently than I should. And the whole thing's ruined by my own sin, but I've been led into that by Satan. I feel like the thief came and stole hmm. from us. Mm -hmm. It's been plundered from us. And I think we also see in the book of Job how sometimes God allows Satan to steal, kill, and destroy where literally his children died. Mm. Literally he lost possessions. So the thief is just on our lives and destroying them as best he can. Jesus is only ever seeking to, to ha give us life and have it abundantly. So this abundant life. Now we should not misunderstand this and go down the road of the prosperity gospel and think that he's talking about health and wealth and all that. We ultimately he's talking about in this life now a rich, full, spiritual oneness with God, a richness, a blessing in our walk with God now and then, wow, heaven afterwards. Talk about the fulfillment of these words. I have come to bring you to heaven where you will have life and have it abundantly. Mm, what a promise. Mm -hmm. And here in verse 11 and 14, we get just a, an incredible statement. Can you speak mm. uh, just to the beauty of verse 11 about yeah. Jesus' statement here? Jesus lays down his life for us. He dies for us. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life. There is no more loving thing that anyone's ever done uh, than, than Jesus dying for sinners like you and me. And this is, this is God demonstrating his own love for us while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. He laid down his life for us for us under the wrath of God, under the judgment of the law, so that we might have eternal life. And he says it again, I uh, lay down my life. He says it again and again. Mm -hmm. Contrast it with the hired man who doesn't lay down anything. He's taking from the sheep. He's not giving to them, he's taking from them. 
Uh, the hired man cares nothing for the sheep. And, you know, in this case, he sees the wolf coming. Any danger, he's going to run. But Jesus sees the danger and goes out to meet it. So, so very powerful. Mm. It says he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Just yeah. these contrasting images that help us understand Jesus' care for yeah. uh, his people. Yeah, I also love the fact that Jesus, um, you know, sacrifices everything that he has for us so that we might have eternal life. You look at as he is literally right before he dies, all his clothing is gone. It's been gambled for. His lifeblood is poured out. Hmm. He's he's been as beaten up as you possibly would be, and now he's dying. And and he's he's given everything that we might have life and have it abundantly. Hmm. As we continue on uh, in verses 14 and 15, we see this statement again, I am the good shepherd. Uh, how is Jesus' relationship with the Father a measure of his relationship with the sheep? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is the good shepherd. We are the sheep of his hand. Many Psalms teach us, not just the 23rd Psalm. So he really is embodying the Father's protective, loving care for his people. And then the sheep metaphor, it's a bit insulting. I mean, they, it's almost like they're proof that evolution couldn't have happened. Survival of the fittest? <laughs> I mean, you're slow, dumb, and delicious. What chance do you have to survive? Mm. You must have a shepherd protecting you. And so the Father has protected his people, Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is the embodiment of that spirit of loving provision and care that he gives us. Slow, dumb, and delicious. I wonder if that's how <laughs> Satan looks at us sometimes and thinks, yes. that's, that's my prey right there. Mm. But praise God for a good shepherd. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this phrase, laying down his life, that's repeated again and mm -hmm. again in verses 11 through 18. What does this teach us about the centrality of Jesus' sacrificial death in his mission to seek and save his sheep? Well, it is the reason he came. He came to die, but for me, I can never say that he came just to die. And he says it right in this text. I lay down my life only to take it up again. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus came to die and rise again mm. to give us full forgiveness of sins, hence the death, and new abundant life, hence the rising again. And so that's a completion of all that, the, that, that Jesus sorry, ultimately came to do for us. Mm. And as he continues on, who, who are these other sheep that are not of this sheep pen? And what's the significance of the promise, like you mentioned earlier, that there'll be one flock and mm -hmm. one shepherd? I can't, I can't hear this except to think about Gentile, elect Gentiles, that God's plan always was for the nations, hmm. that Abraham, through his offspring, all peoples on earth, all families of nations would be blessed. They weren't plan B. It wasn't God was only doing something through the Jews. But the Jews were a doorway through which he was going to bless the entire world. So the other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, Paul speaks of wild olive shoots that are carved out of a wild olive tree and grafted into one cultivated olive tree, which is the Jews. So the other sheep that are going to be in this one sheep pen, these are the people of God with a Jewish heritage, mm. a Jewish lineage spiritually, but one flock, one shepherd, one people. So it's again Ephesians 2. Uh, there's this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It's removed in Jesus and he makes one new man. That's the same teaching as one flock, one shepherd. Mm. At the beginning of verse 17, we read this phrase, for this reason, the Father mm. loves me. Mm -hmm. How is the Father's love for the Son related to his willingness to die for his sheep? I could go on and on about it. I think the greatest display of courage and piety there's ever been was in Gethsemane mm. when Jesus was willing to drink the cup. Wow. 
And the reason the Father loves me is I do his will even to the point of laying down my life. He says to the Father, the Father effectively says to him, it is not possible for, for the sheep to be saved unless you drink this cup. My son, will you do it? And he said, I'll do it. And that's why the Father loves me, because I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to die. Um, I did not consider my life so precious to me, but I considered the will of God more precious. And this is the, the perfect man, really, the perfect son of man, to be a servant obeying the will of God. That's what we should have been all along, and the Father loves that. Mm. Well, as we think about the way in which Jesus died, we think mm -hmm. about... Uh, Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross. Yeah. Is it really true that no one could kill Jesus? Yes. And if so, <laughs> how, how should this cause us to worship Christ for his atoning death it's on the cross? It's absolutely true that no one could kill Jesus if he didn't want to be killed. Hmm. He's God. He's almighty God. If he can make a storm stop, he can make a storm start. He, he can whip up a wind anytime he wants or make it stop. I would just take one simple thing. Okay, his ability to raise the dead. Mm. You're the Roman army and a bunch of Jews and you have to kill the same guy 16 times because he keeps going back to Jesus and Jesus keeps healing him and sending him back into the battle. You will lose eventually. But Jesus doesn't need the human soldiers. He could call on his father and he would put 12 legions of angels. At his, but he doesn't need the angels. He's almighty God. He created the, the heavens by the breath of his mouth. And so if he says to the Roman army, be dead, they're dead. And the second coming, he's fighting with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to effectively say that, be dead, mm. go to hell. He will say that as the judge of all the earth and they will go because that's his authority, his power. So no one can kill him. He could actually in some amazing and strange way to behold, he could have been on the cross for a thousand years and not died. You could have punctured him a thousand times and blood could have flowed out of him and he wouldn't die. He died because he chose to die. Mm. And so he laid down his life. And they're actually surprised how little time he was on the cross. Usually it takes a day. Hmm. So when everything was fulfilled, he said, I thirst, took the drink, and then he gave up his spirit. Hmm. And so he just chose to die. Wow. Not in a suicidal sort of way. He just gave up his spirit. He left the body. No one can do that. So no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Yeah. And not only does he lay it down, yeah. but he continues on. What does Jesus refer to when he says he has authority to mm -hmm. take his life up again? And does anyone else have yeah. this authority? No, no. He has the keys of death and Hades. He mm. has the keys of, of death and the grave. And he had them while he lived. He's God. And so he laid down his life and died, and then he took it up again in fulfillment of Scripture. He could, have, he could have come alive again an hour later, but they would have believed he really hadn't died. He could have come alive again a year later, a century later. It, it, it just, you know, that's why he said, the girl is not dead, only sleeping. Jesus is in charge of death. He has the keys of death in Hades. And he took them from Satan. By dying, he destroyed him who held the power of death, that is the devil. But Jesus had the ability to take his life up again. And again, this is the working of the Trinity. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. He had the authority to take his life back up again. And the Spirit raised him from the dead in Romans chapter 8. It's the work of the Trinity. Hmm. So all in all, in this interaction, just some incredible statements yeah. by Jesus, uh, some incredible truths for us to meditate on about who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. But how does the crowd react mm -hmm. to Jesus' statement at the oh. end of this? <laughs> They're divided. This is the consistent theme. 
you got those that are Jesus' sheep and those that aren't. And so some of them, the ones that aren't, are he's insane. He, one translation, he's raving mad. Mm. I mean, it's just his statements made no sense to them. But, but others are saying, you know, no, actually the things he's saying make complete sense. So if you're a believer, the words of Jesus will make sense to you and be the most profound things you've ever heard. If you're not, they'll seem crazy. That's the wisdom also of Jesus using parables because parables tend to separate the wheat from the chaff. Mm. And so when you listen to that, you're like, wow, this is wise. Or you think, this is crazy, it makes no sense. Oh, well, this has been an incredible walk through these first 21 verses of John chapter 10. Any final thoughts for us on this passage? Yeah, I just look at this and I just say, I want that abundant life. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the heavenly, um, eternal, abundant life, but I want it now. Mm. And I don't want Satan to steal it from me by my own sins. I want to have the most abundant life I can have now by following Christ. And isn't it wonderful that our good shepherd laid down his life for the ways that we mess up, we sin, and ultimately the thief is not going to steal or kill or destroy from us, but we'll have eternal life. Mm. Praise God. Well, this has been episode 20 in the book of John. And we would invite you to join us next time for episode 21 entitled The Eternal Security of the Sheep, where we'll discuss John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.